Hey, it's McKay. Have you ever noticed that for whatever reasons, things just get stuck? Nothing seems to work anymore and your healing journey grinds to a halt. That's why I put together a brand new program to help you get back on the healing path. It's called the Three Day Lime Reboot. Head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com forward slash reboot to see if it's a good fit for you. Calling all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Healing from Lyme disease isn't about doing a million different things. It's about finding the few things that work and then sticking with it. Since 2015, McKay Rippey has been encouraging folks to never give up. Lyme disease causes all kinds of problems and focusing only on killing bugs leads to diminishing returns. That's why generic cookie cutter treatments don't work. You need to fight Lyme like a ninja. If that sounds like a plan, keep listening. And if you want to know more, visit us at LimeNinjaRadio.com. Here's your host, McKay Rippey. Calling all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Healing from Lyme disease isn't about doing a million different things. It's about finding the few things that work and then sticking with it. Since 2015, McKay Rippey has been encouraging folks to never give up. Lyme disease causes all kinds of problems, and focusing only on killing bugs leads to diminishing returns. That's why generic cookie-cutter treatments don't work. You need to fight Lyme like a ninja. If that sounds like a plan, keep listening. And if you want to know more, visit us at LimeNinjaRadio.com. Here's your host, McKay Rippey. Good evening. You know, I was listening to the intro, and it's funny because you said it's not just about killing bugs. But tonight we're going to talk all about bugs, and ticks in particular. But it won't just be me spouting off at the mouth. We actually have an expert with us. Mandy Rome, and she's a PhD. She's down at the University of uh, Binghamton, which is about, well, I always like to say hour and a half, but it's really two hours. I always, when we're heading down to Baltimore Aurora, it's always like, okay, Binghamton's only an hour and a half, and then finally <laughs> two hours in there, it's like, okay, we're finally there. It's two yeah. hours due south of us. And they, what they do, they put on a Southern Tier Lime conference every year and it's absolutely fantastic unfortunately this year like so many other things it got canceled and i've been lucky enough to be able to gather up some of the scheduled speakers and we're doing interviews with lime ninja radio so i'm very thankful for the university of binghamton and all their help uh peter and mandy and all the other folks down there to to help keep this going and we're excited to have mandy and aurora as you know, Lyme disease is an international problem, and people join us from all over the world to listen about Lyme disease and Lyme Ninja Radio and prevention and treatment and all the different types of things. So while we're reading our list, go ahead and type in the comments where you're from so we can say hello to you. And Aurora, in the meantime, what are our top 10 listening cities? We've got a... 
new contender in the top three this week. So starting at number 10, we have Waterloo, Iowa. Number nine, Clarksville, Maryland. Number eight, Oaks Park, Illinois. Number seven, Charlottesville, Virginia. Number six, Chicago, Illinois. Number five, Lexington, Kentucky. Number four, Ashburn, Virginia. Number three, Perth, Australia. Number two, Paris, France. And number one, Santiago, Chile. Still Santiago, Chile. Perth is new, though. So I actually know where Clarksville, Maryland is. It's it's by Columbia, Maryland, where I studied acupuncture. Oh, really? Yes. So it's funny to hear places you actually know about <laughs> listening. And there's the monkeys tune, Take the last, last Train to Clarksville. I think they're talking about Clarksville, Maryland. There is a train that goes through there. So anyway, before we get go down memory lane too far, Roy, why don't you tell us about this week's guest, Mandy Rome. Okay. So Mandy Rome is a research scientist at the Bassett Research Institute in Cooperstown, New York. She's performed extensive field and laboratory research on tick-borne diseases in New York State since 2012 and has recently begun expanding her research throughout the Northeast. Her research explores the ecological risk of Lyme and other tick-borne pathogens, risk factors associated with infection, quality of life changes resulting from acute or chronic Lyme infection, and the occupational hazards of tick-borne disease exposure. Excellent. I'm very excited to speak with Mandy, mainly to get some myself cleared up. I think I have a couple myths floating around in my head that need to be (laughs) about Lyme disease and how you actually get it. So yeah. Yes, let's let's dive right in. So, Roar, thanks very much. We'll bring you up in a little bit. And in the meantime, Mandy, welcome. Hello. Hi. Great to be here. For, oh, thanks for taking some time out of your social isolation to spend it social, <laughs> socially isolated with us in community. Absolutely. Yes. Now, your research is in how people get Lyme disease or how people get bit by ticks. A little bit of both. Okay. Um, so we're worried about um, what people are doing to get themselves bitten, but then also how long a tick is attached. Um, so if a tick kind of bites you for five minutes, the risk of disease transmission is pretty low. Um, but if it if you're not doing the frequent tick checks, if you're not noticing you've been bit by one and it's on for a while, then uh, the longer it's on, the higher the chances are that if it's carrying something, it will transmit. So my understanding of that was the time of kind of what's what's the official it's like is it 24 hours 12 hours it I so forget. for it depends on what pathogen we're talking about so if it's Lyme disease Borrelia. yeah Borrelia the general rule of thumb is uh 36 hours or more for transmission to occur so the bacteria actually kind of just hangs out in the gut of the tick so as the tick starts feeding on the person or animal or whatever it's feeding on um the the Borrelia sort of activate, if you will. So as the tick is feeding, what it's doing is taking red blood cells in returning plasma. So as that cycle is going through, then the spirochetes are migrating up from the mid gut and into the person. Um, That being said, there are a lot of people, I'm sure you've talked to, a lot of people I have talked to have said, you know, my child went outside um, and, you know, right here on their arm where you can see plain as day, they didn't have anything. 10 minutes later, they came in and they had the bullseye rash already. 
Um, so the problem is <laughs> the studies are from controlled lab experiments, exactly. which I mean is a great way to do science, of course, but it doesn't mimic exactly what happens in nature. So say you were to have some animal that the tick hopped on that's good at grooming. So the tick was on for 10 hours and then the animal groomed it off. And then you unfortunately happen to walk along next and the tick hops on you. You're already so far into that process. Right. So yes. um, the general rule of thumb is that, but I would argue that there are, are definitely exceptions to it. Excellent. And th so that's my understanding too, that with the pre-feeding type of event that happens. So yep. essentially the Borelli gets activated, pre-activated. Mm -hmm. So it's somewhere near the tick saliva glands to begin with. So the transmission time is just a lot less. Could so be, that, yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. So I'm glad I've got that one cleared up. <laughs> <laughs> now, the other thing is, you know, in, in terms of, what do I want to say? In, in terms of habitat, where mm -hmm. the ticks live. So really, I mean, you really, you're studying everything from the ticks life cycle to the vector's life cycle. So a vector is just something that carries the tick around and gives it to us. To well, end, the, end vector, the, the, the vector is the wrong? tick. So the reservoir the is what the carries tick. The, the tick. The reservoirs are, okay, thank yep. you. So the vector is the tick. And, oh, speaking of that, before I finish that thought, I'm going to forget this one. We know that we all know about the black-legged tick and other ticks carrying uh, tick-borne diseases. Mm -hmm. We've heard stories of other insects. Are those outliers like so far out that we shouldn't be that worried about? It's kind of like hit by lightning or even, you know, more rare than that. Or should be worried about black flies and mosquitoes and things like that. Do we know? There shouldn't be a worry. So the thing is, even if something else can carry Borrelia, it doesn't mean it can transmit it to humans. Um, so right now, there is no evidence to say that anything other than uh, ticks can transmit the tick-borne diseases. So anything other than the black-legged tick in the northeastern U.S. can transmit Lyme. And with your studies, there's so many ticks out there that we really, it's still scary enough, right? We don't need to invent new vectors. Right. Yeah, right? there are a lot of ticks. And I mean, we did just have, when did that start? 2017, I think. We now have the uh, the Asian longhorn tick around. So that doesn't, right now in the U.S., it doesn't carry any pathogens yet. yet. Um, so hopefully we stay that way for a while. <laughs> and so in, in terms of habitat where human beings need to be concerned about picking up ticks uh you know i hear lots of different things you know it's a lot you know leaf litter mm -hmm. you know cool places like in the woods but ticks have live in other places right it's like yeah where, so is, is there you know like what's What's the range? Obviously, you know, it's going to be a bell curve, right? There's a sweet spot where ticks absolutely love it. You know, a right. little bit cooler, a little bit moister. I think we know that. But then they're going to still fan out, right? That's just part mm -hmm. of the competitive, right? And well, so and the thing is with, especially the deer ticks, it's, they're very lazy. If you want to call a tick lazy, um, they will not move on their own more than one square meter in their entire life. Wow. They will only Unless move. Unless they get carried. Yes. 
And that's where it kind of makes that weird, you know, where are all of these ticks? Because it depends on where those reservoirs go. So ticks need moisture. That's why they thrive in the Northeast. We have a lot of moisture here. So they need that to survive. So generally, and I say generally, you don't see a lot of ticks in mowed grass that doesn't have uh, trees around it and shade because it doesn't really retain too much moisture. Of course, you will see them because, you know, say your backyard is completely open, completely sunny. You're going to think there's probably a less chance of having ticks there, but all it takes is a bird to fly over, a squirrel to walk through, a deer to walk through, that tick finishes eating and you know, luck of the draw, if it's an adult and it's mated, then it drops off, then it's going to lay a thousand eggs in your lawn. <laughs> so the die off rate would certainly be higher because you wouldn't have as much moisture, but um, unfortunately they can be everywhere. <laughs> and okay. So, and then how long is it? So a tick's lifespan is, is it three years? Does it go through all the different phases about two years. About two years. Okay. Yep. And that's every way from the nymph all the way through the adult stage? From the egg to the larva okay. to the nymph to the adult. Yep. Okay. All right. And th so the other thing I want to point out is, you know, especially with the cooler morning. So the other thing we have up here in, in this environment is the mornings are still cool. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times I'll be outside and we have sections of mowed grass, Right. And then we have actually a hay field out there where we're, we're growing hay for our cows. Mm -hmm. And when we cut the hay field, the, the bottom of that never dries in the, in the taller grass. So, it's, you know, depending on where we cut it, it can be anywhere from two feet to three feet tall. The bottom mm -hmm. ne never, ever dries out. And in the mornings, it's still, even in our short grass where we mow around the house, I'll, I'll go out there with my shoes or bare feet and it's wet. It's still wet. It's, mm -hmm. all, it's always wet. So, right. you know, it's the little micro environments at the bottom of the grass there, you know, it can dry out in a very dry period, but right. around here, mm, it, you know, it retains a lot of moisture. Yeah. It's a lot of water. So, so then the other thing that comes to mind here is, and I'm going to ask you this question. You may not have an answer for that is how, how involved are pets in transmitting these diseases to us. Cause if the chicks only travel a meter, it's like, what, you know, where, where are we getting them? But how far do your pets travel? Well, I mean, that's, that's the big question. Point. Yeah. So the, the big um, kind of public health message regarding pets and uh, Lyme disease transmission has been largely aimed at dogs. Um, so dogs are what we call a sentinel species for Lyme. So, you know, you let your dog out in the backyard, they're rolling around, they're going through the bushes and, you know, doing dog things. And then they come back in and we love our pets. So we let them on the couch with us. We let them in bed with us. So if they picked up a tick while they were out and then they're laying on your lap, the tick, this is why tick checks are so important. Obviously, they're a lot harder to do on a dog than yourself, but ticks usually crawl around for a little while to kind of find that great place to bite. Um, so that's why everybody's always pushing for, you know, as soon as you come inside, just do a tick check change your clothes. Um, so if, you know, your dog's lying on your lap on the couch and then the tick is like, oh, wow, that seems like a better host and we'll crawl off your dog and onto you. But what's interesting, some of my dissertation research, I was looking at the risk factors for Lyme disease and dog came up as a risk factor, but not as 
big of a, a, a significant of a risk factor as uh, cat ownership did, which really surprised me. So the research is very torn. Um, you know, dogs have incredibly expressive personalities, so we know when they're not feeling well. Cats are, you know, pretty independent and um, cats can definitely have Lyme disease. They can carry it, but they're not sure if, to, if cats really get quite as sick as dogs do, as horses do. Um, but what my research showed was that the bigger risk factor was owning a cat, which was interesting after I had thought about it. Um, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, so I wish I had asked people if they had indoor or outdoor cats. But if you think about it, the range of an outdoor cat versus the range of a dog is very different because nobody knows where their cat goes. They just do their thing. So they're climbing through bushes, going through everything, whereas your dog usually kind of has that yard perimeter and that's what they're allowed in and that's it. Um, so outdoor cats is another thing as well. Interesting. So, we, right, we hear all the stories about that cats, the ticks don't like cats particularly, but that doesn't mean they can't pick them up. And right. if the cats are anything like ours, they're out after the rodents. Mm-hmm. Right? Exactly. So they're, they're hunting them, they're killing them. And I don't know if you've talked to some of the hunters, uh, like just with the deer hunters, and some mm-hmm. of them you know, tell stories about how just so many more ticks are they find on the animals and that they'll, you know, hang up a carcass after hunting and yep. just thousands of ticks will fall oh, yeah. off the animal. And and they said, you know, this is a new phenomenon. It didn't used to be that way. Right. So deer are actually one of the main breeding sites for ticks. Um, in the, and it happens to just coincide with deer hunting season, unfortunately, um, for hunters. So they, they usually mate right around late fall. Um, and that's one of the studies we did. Um, we went to a, a deer processing center um, to originally our idea was to survey ticks from the deer because the hunter with the tag has to report what county and what town. We're like, oh, this is going to be a great way to just do a quick surveillance. Um, didn't work out that way. So as it turns out, um, what we were finding was that the infection prevalence and the ticks that we pulled off deer was incredibly low and it didn't match what we were picking up just from the vegetation in those same areas. So looking further into the research and sort of organizing ourselves and and doing it again, we kind of took note of what ticks were attached to the deer that were actively feeding on them versus the ticks that were just crawling around and hadn't bitten yet. Um, And through what we were looking at was we had a comparable percentage of ticks that had not fed. They were just about the same infection prevalence as what we picked up in the vegetation. Whereas the ones that had fed, not a single tick that had fed that we found had Borrelia. Um, So looking further into the research that's been done, uh, white-tailed deer actually have what we call a prophylactic immune response. So if a tick that has Borrelia feeds on deer blood, it will actually clear the Borrelia. So deer don't aid in the spread of the pathogen. However, yes, they are, I mean, they're the main breeding site. So they help to propagate tick populations. So indirectly, they absolutely influence the spread of Lyme, um, but directly they, they don't. So that, 
so I've I'd heard that before that ticks. I'm sorry that the deer, the white-tailed deer, were not a reservoir for the Borrelia, but mm-hmm. that they that they ate. Okay, so that and that just made it much more. I understand it much more now. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. So the reservoir is then the little rodents. Where where so, the ticks yeah, get so, the disease from? So anything can be a reservoir, um, but what we talk about is reservoir competency. So that's the rate, the likelihood at which if the rodent is infected or the animal is infected, at what rate will it transmit to a tick that feeds on it? So white-footed mice are the biggest player. They have a competency of about 90%. Okay. Um, Then you've got chipmunks, I believe are about 75%. Squirrels are about 50% and deer are incredibly low. So, and that's why we have... When we look at the Northeast, you know, you were saying the hunters were saying, you know, we never saw this many ticks on deer before. And you've probably talked to a lot of people as well, as have I, um, especially in our area of central New York, the the folks that have been here for a long time. They say, you know, 20 years ago, you would have never even heard of a tick. They were around, but not in the these alarming numbers where we're constantly worried about them. Um, but that's we love our suburbs here. So what we're doing is kind of making, like you were talking about, sort of these little microecologies. So all of the the buildings that we're making, you know, we're making roads, we're making parks, we're making suburbs. So we are dividing what used to be this big sprawling forest. So then you have a high species biodiversity. So you've got your, you range from your, your small rodents, which are competent reservoir, all the way up to your large mammals that are incompetent reservoirs. So everything sort of balances each other out. So you still have some Lyme, you've still got ticks, but it sort of keeps it at an okay level. Whereas we break everything up. So what we do is drive out predators. So coyotes, fox, bobcats, things that keep rodent populations in check, we knock them out. So then we have these really competent reservoirs. And of course they find their way into our walls and near our homes and things like that because they're nice and warm for the winter yeah. and we end up just kind of propagating both competent reservoirs and tick population. And how many different animals and well, animals have you studied? I mean, have been studied to see the reservoir competency learning a new victim? A lot have been studied. So um, you know, have you got into bats and possums and raccoons and um, I've not seen anything on bats. Um, raccoons, yes. Um, possums are actually really awesome. So possums kill ticks in very high numbers. Um, so despite us being terrified of them because they've got their little fangs, um, if you see one in your yard, encourage it to stay <laughs> because they do really kill them in way. high numbers. Uh, yeah, okay. call them back. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean it. Come back. <laughs> yes. And, and, but what about, so what I remember I've uh, a year ago, I posted, you know, there's that story comes around every spring about possums are great for eating ticks and, yeah. and, and so forth and so on. And somebody commented uh, on, on the Facebook post. He said, yeah, but they carry ticks too. So do we know how, of a much of a competent reservoir a possum is in terms of infecting the ticks? So I don't think, because possums are also really good at grooming. Mm-hmm. So they kind of pluck off most of the ticks. 
I'm not sure. I'm sure there are studies, but I don't know the number offhand of um, what competency they are. But the, the general rule of thumb is the larger the mammal gets, the less competent it is. So we've got the mice are super competent. Chipmunks a little less so. Squirrels a little less so. Then we get up to deer, even less of, and raccoons in there too. How about humans? As being a being a reservoir. Reservoir, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't think we're that competent. Um, we get plenty sick, but we do, we do. Um, but I don't, I don't think we're very competent at giving anything to a tick. Okay. Hopefully, it stays that way. <laughs> yes. Just uh, anyway, just crossed my mind. It's like, hmm, you know, you get the tick and will it infect? And is it also true that it takes at what stage does the tick acquire the diseases? Because they're not born, they're not transmitted, whatever that is, through the egg process, right? Right. They have to so, pick it up. Lyme and anaplasma can't be transmitted transovarially. So even if the adult female, when she lays her eggs, if she's carrying Borrelia, it's not going to go. Well, Borrelia burgdorferi, so that, that's the typical Lyme disease that we're always talking about. But then we have Borrelia myomotoi, mm -hmm. so that one's relatively new. Um, it's much more rare than Borrelia burgdorferi, but that can be transoverally transmitted, yeah. but at very, very, very low numbers. Okay. So generally, the larvae are not seen as a threat to humans, um, and most people probably wouldn't even know if they were bitten by a larva because they are so tiny. Um, so when a larva feeds and that's why they, they often will get on something small because these things are the size of a pinhead. The eggs were laid in the grass. They're not going to be climbing up very high. Uh, so they'll get on a mouse or something else. And then when they feed, then they can acquire the infection. They'll molt into a nymph and the nymphs are actually the, they're seen as the, the most dangerous stage for human infection. So they are active in the summertime when we are outside the most when we have the most skin exposure you know we're in our t-shirts we're in our shorts and also they are about the size of a poppy seed once they feed they get bigger but still an engorged poppy seed is not too crazy so they often go unnoticed whereas the adult ticks they're about the size of a sesame seed but generally they are found before that 36 hour threshold and people will remove them um so they're, the adults are said to be responsible for about 5 to 10% of infections, while the nymphs are responsible for about uh, 90 to 95%. And the other thing you mentioned in one of your studies is that although the ticks are more active in the cooler months, the, the transmission happens as, during the summer. So that's when the most humans and human infections occur, but the public health messaging is so the nymphs if you're going by life stage nymphs have only had one chance to feed whereas the adults have had two chances to feed so as logic would tell you the adult infection prevalence is much higher because they've had two opportunities to acquire it whereas the nymphs have only had one so the infection prevalence in adults is much higher but generally people will find them but all of our public health messaging is always really pushing summer, which is absolutely important. But you don't want people to sort of become complacent during spring and fall, just thinking, you know, 
the ticks aren't aren't out they're not gonna infect me or anything like that you still want to be you know checking behind your knees have someone look at your back if you've been outside for a while just to make sure you don't have something because they have a sort of like an anesthetic so most people don't even feel a bite so especially if it's somewhere like on your back you certainly want to catch it Right. The the numbers are about 50% don't remember being bitten. And these yep. are people with confirmed line. And then 50% never saw a rash on top yep. of that. So it's, we, we all, we all, we're very familiar with all the, the horror stories. And right. th- that'll bring up my last question before you keep bring in some of the questions from our uh, audience out here. And that is, is there any hope for prevention or are we just doomed? <laughs> so I think... There, there is hope, but I don't think preventing tick bites is kind of like a, a one method deal. Um, I think it needs to be a, a combination. I think tick checks are definitely the best if you can find it and get it off before it bites you. Um, you know, I'm collecting ticks all the time. So I've picked up over 7,000 ticks in the last eight years. And I've only been bitten one time. So that's that's pretty good odds, especially since I'm actively trying to find ticks. Um, so I, I mean, it's a fashion statement, but it's okay. I tuck my pants in my socks. I tuck my shirt in my pants, all of that stuff. Um, and then I'll wear, I wear deep. Um, the studies are back and forth. You know, half of them say, yes, we found this to be effective. Half of them say no. Um, I wear it anyway. I spray my clothes with permethrin. Mm-hmm. Uh, permethrin has been shown pretty consistently to to be pretty effective. Um, so I use permethrin as well. And I always do tick checks. And I'm a big hiker as well. So even if I'm not intentionally trying to find ticks, sometimes I find them. Um, but I keep actually a lint roller in my car. So when I finish hiking, because if a, a tick is crawling on you, if it hasn't attached, if you use a lint roller, you can It'll grab them. Yeah. Good for dogs too. If you've taken your dog on a hike um, before they get in the car, just give them a roll down, see what you can get off of them. But again, I think it's just a whole slew of, of kind of doing everything. Um, Cause one thing is helpful, but it's not a hundred percent. So if you kind of combine a lot of these prevention methods, then it's, it's more useful. Yes. What was the the message during the age? The safer sex, right? So we need safer hiking. Right. There's no, there's no safe hiking, just safer. Yeah. And, and so I, I'm encouraged that you, uh, you know, that you still go hiking because I know a lot of people, especially after they've suffered with Lyme, have just become terrified about going outside. Right. So my whole thought, so I have kind of an interesting perspective on this. I've never had Lyme myself, but my mother has had Lyme and my mother is not an outdoor person at all. Um, she, so I was young and I have a brother that's about a year and a half older than me. Uh, so we were both young. So my mom put off getting tested because she was not an outdoor person. So she never thought about, uh, tick-borne diseases. And then she kind of threw off the, the fatigue and all of that stuff for having two crazy, very young children. (laughs) So it took her nearly two years, I think, to get diagnosed. Um, So I kind of look at it that way. And, you know, I'm in the woods all the time and I haven't gotten anything. She probably went in our backyard and got it. So it's one of those, you you definitely still want to stay active and you want to do the things you love. Um, Just got to, 
take some extra precautions. And light colors are always very good because light colors, you can see it. Whereas if you got the dark colors on, you'll never see it crawling on you. All right. So let's, if you have some questions for Mandy, please type them in the comments and we'll pull them up. And in the meantime, we'll get started with some of the questions that have already come up. And Paula asks, are ticks less active in summer when it gets warm? So yes and no. <laughs> so they are very active in the summer, but it has to be the right weather conditions. So if it's really hot and dry, they're not going to be as active. They're just kind of going to be laying dormant, if you will. So that's um, my question too. So they don't die. They just I mean, at a certain point, they will die. If, okay. if it's really, really hot and dry, um, they'll, what we call is desiccate. So they'll mm -hmm. literally shrivel up and die. and die. But that takes a while. I mean, we don't, we're, I mean, we're not like Arizona out here. So right. um, that'll take a while for them to do that. But um, last year, not last year, 2018, uh, we actually had an abnormally hot and dry summer in New York. Vermont saw the same thing. Maine saw the same thing. Um, so it's really interesting to look at the the case counts in in all of the Northeast states because you kind of see that steady increase and then you get to 2018 and you drop. So initially looking at that, you sort of get excited and you're like, okay, you know, something's working. We're lessening the incidence of Lyme disease. Um, but we did have a very, very hot and dry year. So the ticks were likely less active. Um, a lot more die off probably occurred. So um yeah, if it's wet but not too wet and not too dry, that's when they're they're kind of out in swarms. And they're only they're only active at what we call active when they're hungry as well. So we can walk by ticks every day. Um, every step we take, we could be walking by a tick, but if it's not hungry, it's not gonna reach out to grab onto us to bite. Hmm. So when we pick up, like when I pick up ticks, I just drag like a, a cloth behind me and the ticks will grab onto it. I usually use corduroy because it has the ridges. It's easy for them to grab on. Um, but that that's the traditional method for picking up ticks. And that's said to only get 6% of what's actually there because you're only getting ticks that are hungry at the time. Interesting. Yeah. So we need to find a way to feed ticks and keep them super lazy. Right. <laughs> How about birds? So birds are um, somewhat competent reservoirs. They're not quite like the mice. They're not as competent. Um, I don't know the percentages off the top of my head right now, but there have been studies on it. Um, but birds are definitely responsible for the uh, large mobility my, my of ticks. Said, yes. Yeah. So we so some ticks that we found in New York and and anywhere else. Um, that are kind of not supposed to be here. It's it's really interesting if you kind of look at the bird migratory routes because you can see all of those out of place ticks follow that, and then that's how you kind of start establishing populations. Yeah, it only takes one, right? Yeah, <laughs> or, or a handful. So Rachel's from St. Paul. What's what's the difference in kind of geography with the different co-infections and Lyme itself? It, are things evenly distributed or are we more likely to find Bartonella here on the east versus, I don't know, something else out Midwest? So 
So Lyme disease is definitely big in both the upper Midwest and Northeast. Um, I'm not sure what anaplasmosis looks like in, uh, in the upper Midwest, um, but I know upper Midwest area, I forget when, I want to say 2018, Borrelia mayoni was first seen. So we don't see that here in the Northeast yet. Unfortunately, I'm sure it will come at some point. Um, but right now, that's only in the, the upper Midwest. Okay. Um, <laughs> is there any way to do a massive... We've got a, a scientist with us here, apparently. <laughs> do a massive bait drop targeted to kill ticks or lime in the blood host. So, so if, I, if we have... understand what she's asking? I think so. Okay. So if, if we target, so we do this with a lot of other diseases. You want to just sort of nip it in the bud. You know, mice don't bother, mice don't bite us, thankfully. Um, so if we could just kind of knock it out of mice, the most competent reservoir, then the ticks feeding on the mice wouldn't get it. The ticks feeding on us wouldn't give it to us. Um, there have been a lot of studies on doing bait drops like this. And for small island populations, it's incredibly effective. Um, but unfortunately, once you move it to somewhere like the Northeast, um, it's not effective. Why do you think that is? Because mice reproduce so rapidly. And then if you just have some that don't, and ticks and mice can give it back and forth. So you'd sort of need to kind of do a twofer try to figure out how to vaccinate all the mice, but also somehow temporarily wipe out all the ticks. <laughs> so um, unfortunately, and with the, the reproduction rate of ticks, even if you're killing, I think they say if you kill nearly 90% of ticks, the population is still growing because each adult female lays between one and 3000 eggs. So just kind of controlling tick populations is, is very difficult. And that's why the lawn, the lawn sprays and stuff like that, um, they have to be consistently maintained. Otherwise they're ineffective. Yeah, that makes total sense. And sp so speaking of that, tick tubes. So yes, I think so. So a tick tube, it's usually, there's probably more sophisticated ways, but if you do a homemade one, um, it's a toilet paper roll or a paper towel roll. And then what you do is stuff it with cotton but you soak that cotton in permethrin mm -hmm. um, and then you put it out in the, in your yard, in your hiking trail, wherever you want to put it. And the mice will come grab the cotton and they'll take it back to their homes. So then the mice are basically coated in permethrin. So you're killing all of the ticks that are on that mouse. Um, so yes, I think it's effective, but in a very short term way, um, because once that cotton, you know, it, the permethrin wears off. So depending on where it is, the permethrin lasts on clothes for six to eight washes. I don't know how that equates to rain um, where that's ineffective. And then that mouse, you know, you're not uh, preventing the mouse from uh, still passing it on after it's gotten away from that. And one thing to note about permethrin is um, when it's wet, it's incredibly harmful to cats. It kind of like shuts down their central nervous system. If it's dry, it's completely harmless to them. So the only thing is you just need to watch where you're spraying your clothes. And then if you're doing tick tubes, I always encourage people to let the 
permethrin dry, yes. that cotton dry before they put it out, just in case, you know, curious cats are playing around in the yard. Um, not a good way to make friends with your neighbors. <laughs> so Julie asks, she says she hasn't been able to kill ticks. <laughs> yeah. So they Why are, they're that? pretty difficult to kill. Um, so generally about, I put them in 70% alcohol, um, 70% ethanol alcohol. And that will kill and also preserve them. Um, but they kind of need to be submerged. So I collect them in little little vials. So they have caps on them. Um, and the ticks will. They'll crawl out of that alcohol and sit on the top. And they'll sit on the lid. Um, they will die slowly, but they will die. So I usually kind of like shake them in there. I don't know if you can drown a tick, but they seem to die faster. <laughs> you can drown them in alcohol anyway. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so 70% alcohol. I mean, that's 140 proof. That's... You know, yeah, that, that would make a really good party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, I think that brings our conversation to an end. Is there anything that I haven't touched on that you wanted to communicate uh, to people out there, or is there any references or websites that are favorites of yours that you'd like to point people to? Anything like that? Um, so I really like, and I work with them in no way, so I'm not endorsing anybody. <laughs> But the University of Rhode Island, um, they have an amazing website. It's called tickencounter.org. And that is a fabulous resource, um, especially for tick identification. Um, so most things that, that you see when you kind of Google tick identification are unfed ticks. But generally what we're trying to identify is a tick that's bitten us. So it doesn't quite look the same. And especially when they get engorged, they all look the same. So the tickencounter.org has an excellent um, infographic to show you how to ID a tick when it just kind of looks like a big old grape. Um, and they have a lot of other excellent resources too. And I, that's one of my favorites. Awesome. That's first I've heard of them. So thank you. Yeah, of course. Start something brand new. <laughs> it's been a pleasure it's so great to have you so close and thank you for all the work you're doing. This is such a tough nut to crack. Right. And like you said, we do need to come at it from all angles. You know, it's not just, you know, a vaccine. It's not just, okay, how do you treat it? It is the prevention side of things. Cause if you can prevent people from getting bit in the first place, then you don't have to worry about all the other downstream effects. Right. Misery exactly. That comes through. Uh, and as we're saying goodbye, people are saying thank you. They oh, well, thank you. <laughs> and thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to be here tonight. It truly was. So Kimberly says thanks, and Julie says thanks. Um, quick question from Marcia. Is there someplace to send a tick? There is yes. here in, in New York. It depends on where you are, but New York, we're lucky. So I'll let you go ahead. and. So there are a bunch of places um, currently – um, a lot of the academic institutions are shut down for tick testing. Um, so Cornell University does, the, the vet school does human um, tick testing for humans or pets, um, but they are not operating right now with the COVID pandemic. Um, also the Thangamani lab out of Upstate Medical, they have actually been, they're sort of doing a, a citizen science project. So they're actually testing ticks for free, which is fabulous. They're also currently shut down right now. Um, so I, I think pretty much every academic institution is shut down, but there are other companies. So technology 
also does tick testing. They are operational right now. I actually sent somebody to them a couple weeks ago that got bitten. So they uh, got results back. But um, I think if you just Google um, tick testing in New York, you should come up with a whole slew of, of folks that are doing it. And luckily the academic institutions, they have right on the top of their page if they're not accepting ticks right now. So you won't kind of send it and lose it. So you'll know. All right. Mandy, thank you so much. You've been thank awesome. You. I look forward, if it's okay with you, uh, we'll keep you on our Rolodex and we'll have a conversation. Uh, yes, absolutely. In fall or next year and see what's new in the, in the tick world. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks. All right, Miss Aurora. All right. That was awesome. You know, I love listening to um, experts in tick behavior, um, especially because, you know, you can't live your entire life in fear of a tick, whether you've had Lyme disease. Well, you can, but you don't have to. And I really like listening to people like Mandy because they can inform us about what you actually need to worry about versus what you don't necessarily have to worry about. So it's, it's great conversation right there. That's right. And thank you, Aurora, for your insights. Always appreciate them and for your help putting all this work together that we do every week. And as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be podcast, Facebook Live, this show it's there you go. Automatic. This this event, this the best part of your day would not be complete without <laughs> <laughs> the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know if you lead a horse to water, a ninja can make it drink? Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.